Good evening. My name is Vivian Catfield, and this is Haunted Muse, a podcast that showcases my writing work in the horror, paranormal, supernatural, and southern gothic genres, as well as the folklore and history that inspired it. This is episode 12 of Haunted Muse, and the third episode of my novel, The Wolf You Feed, presented here as a weekly serial. It is set in 1858 and written in epistolary format. In this session, we will cover about a week in the life of our protagonist, May Ulrich, as she travels west by train. So, here we go. The Wolf You Feed, July 11th, 1858. What a night! After the relative peace of the last few days, during which I have been undisturbed enough to plan every lesson for the fall term, I was awakened to a deafening boom that shook the cabin so hard that the looking-glass, hanging above the wash-basin, fell from the wall and shattered into pieces on the floor. Scrambling into my dressing-gown, I met the steward in the hallway. He informed me that one of the steamer's three boilers had blown, and that the paddle-wheel had been incapacitated. Then he darted off, calling back to me to dress and pack my things, since it was highly probable we'd have to evacuate. Turns out, he needn't have been in such a rush. Although the boat was completely immobilized due to the broken wheel, the fact that the other two boilers did not also explode in a chain reaction meant we were not taking on water in such a way that was unmanageable. After the boatman smartly and swiftly contained the fire, all that remained was for us to wait for the towboats to arrive, which they did before noon. Hooking one up to each side with a series of ropes, each as big around as a man's torso, the plan is to pull us the last of the way, and then complete repairs there in the docks. Thus, we are now progressing toward St. Louis at a much slower pace, which means I probably will not have a layover at all, but will instead need to get directly on to the next boat upon landing. I had been actually hoping to use the time during the layover night to consult with a spiritualist on these dreams that I've been having, but I'll address that later in the entry, after I've explained the incident at hand further. Nevertheless, I feel fortunate it wasn't worse, and that no one was harmed except for the man who may have been our saboteur. The matter of this boilerman's apparent suicide is most curious. From what I've heard, he was a half-Indian, half-white man, and had worked for the steamer line without incident since it first opened in 1854. According to all accounts, he was a hard-working and level-headed individual, who was generally liked by his fellow crew members. Regardless, by what I've gleaned third-hand, after first being filtered through both other members of the crew who worked with him, and second through my fellow passengers, this boiler man was mumbling strangely out of his head about completely random things when he went to relieve his crewmen as scheduled at midnight. The man who was leaving the shift was worried enough to stop him and ask if he were running a fever, to which the troubled man snarled that he was fine in such an off-putting manner that the crewman backed away, thinking he'd received some bad news or something, but not wanting to press for details. Being the only person in the boiler room of the steamer at the time of the explosion, no one actually saw what happened. The other boilerman said everything was running perfectly, and he just finished refueling them as was his duty before he left on the shift change. The only other indication that something was about to happen was that a boy who worked in the stockroom just above heard the man screaming and cursing just before the explosion. 
Thinking the man had hurt himself and attempting to rush to his aid by the front stairs, the boy ran out the door of the room opposite the rear of the vessel. This move likely saved his life since the floor under the shelves where he had been counting stores was blown away in the explosion, with the searing draft of it going up through the chimney. Turns out, the man was cursing not because he was hurt, but because he knew he was somewhat thwarted in his efforts to do even more damage to the steamer. A small wooden box filled with almost two dozen sticks of wet dynamite was found wedged into a crevice near the coal bins. Some type of leak in the boiler room had allowed the first few layers in the box to become soggy, but the bottom of the box had been pried off and the last layer of sticks removed. The current consensus from what was left of the scene was that the boilerman had put two sticks of dynamite under each boiler, then lit them at the same time while standing as close to the center boiler as possible. If his intention was indeed to kill himself, he was somewhat lucky, as one of the two placed under the central boiler blew, tearing him into scattered scraps of flesh from the knees upward. However, since the remaining five were still too soggy to catch, it seems the rest of us enjoyed the greater piece of luck, as an explosion of all three boilers simultaneously could have resulted in the demise of everyone on board. I've been very shaken by this incident, not only, as you can imagine, because of the immediate threat to my personal safety, but also because of the nature of the series of dreams I've been having nightly since leaving Portland. Looking back over my journal here, I see that I've made note of only two so far, it being my intention that maybe if I didn't dwell on them during my waking hours, perhaps they would cease. Yet, they have not. Instead, the dream in which I was engaged just before the explosion last night makes me most uncomfortable, given that it now seems prophetic when viewed in hindsight. In the dream, I was underground. At first, I thought it was some sort of natural cavern. During my previous travels abroad in France, I visited several caves that I found fascinating, so it would have been very normal as a mental picture for me to revisit. <clears throat> However, as my eyes adjusted to the dimness of the light in the dream, which is yet another strange phenomenon, because even though my dream life has always been quite active, it doesn't usually include such visceral sensations. I found that it was not a typical cave filled with stalactites that had so piqued my curiosity before in France. Instead, I could tell this was not a natural cave at all, but rather a man-made mine. Waving the lantern in my hand left to right, the walls of the cave gleamed with a luminescence I recognized must be gold. How I knew this, I haven't the foggiest idea, since I've never been inside a gold mine. Moving closer to the gilded walls, I reached out to run my hands over the surface, feeling the contrast between the rough granite and the smoothly cleaved breaks of golden nuggets as big as my fist protruding among them. Slowly, as I marveled at this discovery, I became aware of footsteps echoing in the distance into the blackness of the mine shaft. The sharp, crunching rapidity of these footfalls told me that a person was running as fast as his feet would fly. Distracted, I swung my lantern toward the blackness just as I heard a man's voice cry out in panic, RUN! Instinctively, I dropped the lantern and fled toward the entrance of the mine, which was about a hundred yards behind me. 
As I ran, I could hear something that began as a low, dull growl, growing progressively louder at a rapid pace. In a few seconds, I could no longer hear the flight of the man whose warning I heeded. Within 50 yards of the mouth, a whoosh of dark gray dust hit me in the back like the hot blast of a furnace. I stumbled, but did not fall, and continued on coughing and panting as I ran. <coughs> Finally, reaching the mine's entrance, I broke off to the side amidst a grove of scrub pine. Bent over with hands and knees and wheezing for breath, I noticed I was wearing men's trousers. The fact had only a second to register for I saw my creature, the Lugaru of my dreams, come shooting out of the mine. His fur sparked with flecks and embers under a layer of grime. He fell immediately to the ground, rolling back and forth in the red clay soil. Extinguishing them, he lay whimpering in the dust. As it became the bizarre normalcy of a dream, I felt no fear from this enormous wolf-like creature. Approaching him cautiously, I could smell the acrid scent of burnt fur. The beast lay completely still, the slight movement of his side and the labored wheezing of his breath giving the only indication that he remained alive. I will never know how the dream should have ended, for it was at that point I was jerked awake by the explosion on board this steamer in real life. I'm aware that most are skeptical of reading too much into dreams, but after a week in which this creature has made his presence known to me with increasing frequency, I cannot help but wonder if there is some knowledge that I am meant to gain, especially since his appearance last night was clearly some sort of warning that danger was very near. I'm also aware that many believe spiritualism is complete nonsense. However, as I've mentioned before, I found great comfort after my mother and Grandpierre passed in knowing that they weren't completely absent from my life. Rather, they existed in a different realm, veiled from human comprehension. Thus, I wish that I could be allowed time for a layover in St. Louis, as I have heard it's a great city for mediums. I could do with a comfort now, given the strange series of deaths that have plagued my journey so far, too. I feel very strongly there is some omen in all of this that I must heed. Perhaps I will relate this story as to the source of my confidence in spiritualism at a later time, when news in my present life is slower. For now, my hand grows weary, and I would prefer not to open another bottle of ink, lest it spill in my trunk during the transition between ships. July 12th, 1858. I begin today with two kinds of news, good and bad. However, the bad news might not be that terrible after all. It gives me ample time between now and my departure from St. Louis on the next available steamer to find and consult with a spiritualist about the concerns articulated in my previous entry. The somewhat poor news is that upon our late arrival in St. Louis, we were informed that each of us must give a statement to the local inspector before leaving the vessel. This is allegedly standard procedure that the steamboat company must follow in order to successfully apply for the insurance benefits and attempt to recover the cost of repairs. I have my doubts, though, 
not about the fact that the company plans to use insurance for the repairs, but that this is, quote, standard procedure. I think that the company is worried someone else on board might have additional insights as to why the Boilerman chose to commit suicide by dynamite. Perhaps their coming forward later might result in a prolonged investigation and or a later lawsuit for related people or property which could cause further damage to the company and its reputation. <sighs> this is an unfortunate consequence of living in increasingly litigious times. How I loathe lawyers. Ugh. Due to... Due to this delay caused by the Inquisition, I will not be able to jump from boat to boat without a layover, as I had originally supposed. Instead, I will have to wait for the next available steamer heading west to Independence, and it doesn't leave until Thursday at noon. Rather than being disconcerted, though, I actually welcome this part of the news. Spending a few days in the last major city that I will see for a while gives me the time to steady myself and clear my mind of all that has transpired since leaving Hartford that I think I need. Hopefully, I might regain a sense of optimism with which I first embarked upon this endeavor. That being said, I've got some time on my hands to wait in the cabin until I'm called up to give my statement. Thus, while I wait, I might as well relate to you the circumstances of my previous encounters with spiritualists, which have given me reason to believe their work is not the hokum some are quick to judge it to be. First, lest you think I'm a witch or some other sort of pagan convert, allow me to assure you that the Sundays of my girlhood were spent in attendance at the First Parish Church of Portland. Although the Ulrich family was not a sufficiently august personage to warrant the dedication of a family pew, as the Longfellows have there, we engaged in the fellowship of the Unitarian community regularly enough for me to inoculate myself against spiritual sickness with all that I felt necessary from the Bible, accompanied by healthy doses of tolerance and acceptance for which Unitarians are known. This opened the door early to my interest in spiritual inquiry. During the summer after my graduation from Westbrook, when I first heard of the Fox sisters, probably everyone in New England heard of them that summer, since their claims that they had contacted the ghost of a peddler who, murdered, who was murdered in their basement caused quite a sensation. Overnight, it became all the rage amongst the young set in which I moved to gather in one parlor or another by candlelight, hold hands in a circle, and attempt to communicate with the dead. Then it was just a game, an excellent reason to be in close contact with handsome gentlemen in the dark without causing a scandal. It's always been more of a girl's thing than a man's, even now, spiritualism. My girlfriends and I would take turns leading the sessions, but over time they married off, and gradually I became the only one left. The interest that our social circle had in the fad lost its intensity. By the time the story broke in 1851 that their cousin had signed a statement swearing the foxes were frauds, our group had largely moved into the domestic sphere of life, leaving the foxes fall from grace to go unheard like a tree in the forest. Perhaps because I remained solo, without the yoke of wifely duties across my shoulders, I had time to continue to pursue my explorations within the spiritual realm during my summer breaks from school. It became sort of a game for me that, as soon as I read of a new phenomenon, I had to seek out one or more of its practitioners and see for myself whether their attempts to communicate with the spirits was real or fantasy. 
first I ventured south through the Carolinas, where I encountered all kinds of hoodoo and voodoo magic that, alas, always turned out to be some sort of sham or another. Playing on the obvious exotic appeal of being in possession of some rare knowledge of the spirit world known only to fellow Africans, these voodooers, or so they called themselves, mostly former female slaves who had purchased their freedom after years of selling themselves to the night on the side, abounded in the coastal regions. Although I was never mean-spirited enough to expose these women in front of paying customers and thereby deprive them of their livelihood, Many was the time I walked out of a voodoo seance, overcome by a fit of giggles, <laughs> induced by catching a glimpse of one of their helpers behind a curtain or ill-concealed string used to fake a levitation. Later, in my travels across Europe, I encountered more down-on-their-luck Greeks and Italians, attempting to take advantage of their olive complexions and dark curls by posing as, quote, gypsy fortune-tellers. Uh, they would fill a dozen caravans. Since these individuals were a peg down from their southern voodoo counterparts in my book, mostly because they didn't only employ assistants to help with their illusions, but also to pick the pockets of their patrons while they wishfully pretended to be under hypnotic trance, I allowed myself more liberties in poking fun at them. At one such gathering, after catching a glimpse from the corner of my supposed-to-be-shut eye of the fortune teller's assistant creeping along behind a heavy curtain around the perimeter of the room, I volunteered to be the next one hypnotized. Then I turned the tables on them by pretending to be a long-dead lady of the aristocracy from whom some jewelry had been stolen. At the peak of my alleged possession by this lady, I flung my hand dramatically to point at the creeper behind the curtain. He dropped the purse he had been rifling through and fell forward, crashing onto the table. A dwarf came out from under it, screeching, Ah! Having singed his beard with a candle, he'd held up under the hole in the table for the crystal ball so as to give it an ethereal appearance of from being lit from within. <laughs> Even now as I think about it, I can't help but chuckle. When I made it to Edinburgh, on what was scheduled to be my next-to-last stop before returning home to Maine, I miss Dublin due to news of my family's illness, I finally encountered something worth my interest, though. The first clue that this spiritual seance was to be different from those previous was the fact that I did not have to pay for an invitation. Instead, I heard about the proposed seance at a public lecture on the works of Emanuel Swedenborg, Whereupon, I was invited to join the host and a group of mostly intellectuals for a round of experiments on what they termed theosophy. Specifically, I later learned at the meeting, their goal was not to go wrapping around the edges of tables in an attempt to mimic the knocks of stray ghosts on some sort of spiritual door, but rather to use meditation to throw the door wide open and walk through themselves by means of something that they called astral projection. After the main lecture, a group of a half dozen or so of us regathered at 11 in the evening, and being briefed as to what was to transpire, we went into a room in which there were a number of couches and chaise lounges. Each one of us chose one and lay down. Then we were instructed to relax and allow ourselves to be guided through a series of meditation techniques 
intended on allowing us to release all the thoughts of our day and clear a path for journey onto an astral plane. At some point, I genuinely fell asleep, only to sensorily awaken into a dream in which I was flying over very tall mountains covered in snow. Sailing above the tall evergreens, I was struck by how absolutely quiet everything was, with only the sound of my dress flapping behind me to let me know that I was moving at all. I did not recognize the land over which I flew, but this did not bother me. At last, when I began to feel tired, I found that by lowering my feet back to what would be a normal walking position, it was as if I were pulling a horse to a stop. I began to slowly descend to the ground. Slowly touching down felt a bit like leaping from the top of a carriage. Somewhat too hard, but not enough to throw me off balance. As I stood gazing round this crystal wonderland, tiny flakes of snow started falling from the sky. Sticking out my tongue like a child to catch one, I felt something brush my shoulder. Thinking it was a piece of snow fallen from a cedar tree that towered over me, I gave it a brush, only to find it was instead the tassel at the end of a cord. The cord was made of soft silver silk, and when I instinctively wrapped my fingers around it, there was a little tug upward. It felt like a fish on a line, something moving and alive. Oh, I heard myself wonder as I turned around and looked up into the tree from whence it appeared the cord had come. I tugged back on it gently, but as I did, I had the sensation that my feet were slipping. Thinking I had stepped on a patch of ice, I attempted to regain my footing, but the second step I took slid right out from under me, too. Feeling myself begin to fall backward, I grabbed at the cord with my left hand as well. In a rush, this snowy world disappeared, and it seemed for a fraction of a second as if the cord were the only solid piece of matter in the universe. I awakened on the chaise lounge with the length of silver cord still grasped firmly in both hands, my arms outstretched. The other members of the group sat in straight-backed wooden chairs. Each of them had a pleasant look of curiosity on his or her face as they watched me as one might watch a exotic bird in an aviary. Behind them, I could see that the morning sun was just beginning to rise, its golden light stretching like long fingers down into the curved streets of the city. How was your rest? the leader asked. I hesitated a moment, yawning deeply before I replied. I hate to admit it, but not very rejuvenating at all. I'm actually quite exhausted. The whole room laughed softly, but not in a menacing way. More like a knowing way. <laughs> then it was as it should be, the leader said. Souls travel fast. Sometimes it's hard for the body to catch up. Why don't you share your experience with us, and then we'll all do the same. I hated to wake you, he gestured to the silver cord. But the rest of us were already up and about, ready to exchange ideas. I started to apologize, but he waved me off. Please, there is no need for apologies here. All of us have traveled before, and we know that sometimes it's hard to leave those worlds of beauty and comfort that we might find out there and return to this one. 
but you'll get used to controlling it in time. We took turns sharing and discussing our journeys. Most had been enjoyable to some degree, like mine. One man felt as if he were back at school, whereas he had been the head boy, only now he flew unrecognized above the heads of pupils decades his junior. A lady recalled a forest that she'd seen one happy summer in her youth on a trip that her mother's family took to Bavaria. Another elderly man, though, who had been a sailor in his early years, had felt a sensation of swirling among the masts, only when he attempted to settle down near a stern, he missed and fell into the water, terrified as he saw the boat sailing away from him. Each of these accounts was examined like a piece of literature for symbolic significance. The older gentleman was judged to have unresolved issues, feeling that he had somehow missed the boat of opportunity for a different life that he might have led after his time as a seaman. The former head boy and the Bavarian woman were seen to be searching for safe places of happiness and comfort from their youth, whilst I, who had dreamed of a place I'd never been, albeit in a climate similar to the snowy winters of Maine, seemed to be looking for a new sanctuary that reminded me of the safety of my old life, but with the option for more independence. In hindsight, this reading appears accurate, as only a few days later I received news to return home, and now, well... Here I am, on my way to the snow-capped Rocky Mountains. Long story short, and I must be wrapping up here, as I have been informed that my turn is next to give a statement before disembarking, I returned to Maine upon hearing of my family's illness with a renewed interest in supernatural communication, but also a very strong sense of foreboding that I would not find my family alive. Sadly, as I've already recalled here, that turns out to have been the case. Nevertheless, in the many weeks of restless nights, while I wrestled with the decision to either remain in Portland and take up proprietorship of the pub alone, or to chart another course, I put what I had learned about spiritual travel while abroad into practice. At the risk of seeming crazy, would you believe it if I told you that I spoke to my mother and grandpere during these nocturnal wanderings? And in both cases, they told me it was time to move on. Of course, one might believe that these were the product of my traumatized brain, simply working out what I wanted to say to them, and for them to reply back to me with dreams of wishful thinking. But the dreams were so vivid and so comforting, they were hard to ignore. Thus, I began thinking that the possibility some of my other dreams might offer me insights into the possible future direction of my life. I began writing them down with the intention at some point of seeking out a medium, whom I thought had at least some credibility and could assist in their interpretation. Perhaps I will find one in St. Louis over the next few days. Hopefully through them I will gain some perspective on why the first part of my trip has seemed so ominous. July 16th, 1858. St. Louis, it turns out, has been a most interesting city. It has all the amenities of her sisters back east, great playhouses, wonderful restaurants, including barbecue, and lively company to fill all of them. In hindsight, I'm glad that I've had this extended stopover to enjoy before I head out into the hinterlands. 
although I am the kind of person who is completely able to make her own amusements if need be, I consider myself to be more of a people person than I've been lately. It is my sincerest hope that I get along with my soon-to-be students and whatever kinds of families to whom they might belong. Otherwise, I am beginning to worry that the life of a frontier teacher who knows no one might be somewhat lonely. Today's entry will be a quick one, as the most interesting part of these last few days is happening tonight. I'm going to a mummy unwrapping party, followed by a seance. Kind of a two-for-one deal. Found out about it through an advertisement in the local paper. Although I've seen plenty of mummies, both domestically and abroad, anything Egyptian is always in vogue for its mysterious beauty these days, I've never witnessed the unwrapping of one before. I've heard about it and wanted to go, but the circumstances just never presented themselves. As for the seance, I've heard that the medium is very good, a real one this time, as opposed to all those fakes. Although that judgment I will hold in reserve for now. The timing is certainly right, since we are to begin at midnight, about an hour after the mummy-only crowd has departed. Updates will follow tomorrow after I boarded the last boat and have more time to write. Ta-ta for now. This is the end of May Ulrich's July 16, 1858 journal entry. Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode of The Wolf You Feed. Until next time, this is Vivian Catfield reminding you to remain ever watchful because you never can tell. Someone or something somewhere out there just might be watching you.